Sound design. Yeah. I've always said, as a sound designer, if I can get silence into a piece of film or a piece of work, then that's half of my job done there. Sound design. Yeah. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by sound designer Munzee Thiend. Munzee, thanks for being here. How you doing, Nathan? You all right? I'm doing good. So I definitely want to talk to you about Grand Central Recording Studio, uh, mm-hmm. your career path and what makes great sound design. But first of all, who's the best Punjab rapper? <laughs> Punjab rapper. Uh, right, okay, so I don't know about rappers. Um, singers, as far as singers go, I would say Kulveet Malik. All right, Munzi. So one of my favorite questions to ask everybody that I have on the show is, how did you get your first job in audio? The first job I in proper audio was actually at Grand Central as a runner uh, at Grand Central Studios. Okay, uh, so you've been there for your, your entire career then? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And did yeah. you have some jobs before that or were you basically like out of school into Grand Central? Yeah, and um, no, I, I had a few jobs, um, the sort of things that you would normally, you know... Um, you know, summer jobs, and then I worked for my uncle quite a bit uh, in his uh, convenience store, as most young kids do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then DJing was a big part of my life oh. for a long time. So you were playing so, parties or nightclubs, or yeah, parties, nightclubs, um, weddings, polytechnic. No, a lot of weddings. Okay, <laughs> weddings paid the bills. So yeah, a lot of weddings. Uh, oh really? Then, okay. Indian music was becoming very popular, or Punjabi music was at weddings. And I did that for a long, long time. I mean, it did pay well, but it was a lot of long, you know, a long weekends, long nights, um, and really, really hard work. What do you think were the important qualities that allowed you to do well at Garrett Central and stick around and move up there? Well, to, to give you a little backstory, my, my brother came to Grand Central and... and oh, it was nepotism. Yeah, he, my brother <laughs> applied for a job at... Uh, my brother applied a job uh, at Grand Central. Um, firstly, he got a job as a runner and that gave me an in. And Grand Central uh, had just just been born, basically. Uh, it was, you know, early 90s. And Carol, Carol Humphrey, the managing director of Grand Central, with her partner, Ivor... Ivor Taylor had actually um, commissioned studios to be built and Grand Central was the company name. And so I, I grabbed the opportunity with, you know, with both hands, um, learned uh, so much with the team that we had there. And we weren't, we weren't a very big team at that time. You know, there was four sound designers, um, a couple of runners, uh, a receptionist, an accountant, uh, and a couple of transfer guys, a couple of machine room guys, and that was it, really. The one sort of piece of advice I'd have for any any person who wants to come into audio is when there's an opportunity, go for it, because they don't come around very often. So so what happened to your brother? He's a sound designer. <laughs> he works at another studio now. So, yeah, he's a, okay. he's a, sound, he's a so- sound designer at another studio. Your position in within a facility... Sometimes you have to adapt uh, for whatever reason. So, you know, somebody might leave, as my brother did, or somebody might uh, need to leave on maternity leave. So, you know, the, the management will then obviously give you, because you're a runner or you're a transfer guy, will give you 
a position in a company where you might have to learn new skills and have to do that for a while, which, you know, I think the majority of people in SOA have done that. Um, so I spent a bit of time doing uh, scheduling. I think you call that scheduling in America. Mm-hmm. Um, we call it bookings here, but it's scheduling. So I had to had to kind of chip in and do that for a while. Uh, so um, sort of like it's studio administration. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So booking in studio sessions and and uh, sort of uh, scheduling sessions within within the facility, you know, from making teas and then walking into a room surrounded by beat recipe machines and DAT machines and quarter-inch machines is quite quite intimidating and quite daunting. You know, you kind of walk in and then you realise that actually... You know, some people might never see these machines ever again. That's true. You know, I never really thought about it that way because there's not many recording studios like this anymore. But yeah, it used to be that you would walk into a recording studio and almost every machine in a recording studio is something that you had A, never seen before and B, would probably never own because it's too expensive and you don't need it anyway. But now, if you were a kid walking into a recording studio for the first time, you see computers, which you have... You're familiar with computers, so everything looks kind of familiar. You see screens and computers. <laughs> exactly that, yeah. I mean, it's really funny. I mean, there's, um, there was, I mean, there's, there, were, there was times when, when I walked in, and um, you know, there was a million things going through my head because, you know, at the time I was like, there's so many buttons. You know, there's so many things. Yeah. How am I going to learn all of this? You know, um, and then I think once again, you kind of go back to your kind of your instinct, uh, and the, the one thing I remember vividly, I still remember it now, is that there was a point where I realised that the machine can't do anything unless I tell it to do it. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I tell the machine to do something, it'll do it. So as long as I know what I want to do, then the machine has to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's not the other way around. Um, and that's when the kind of fear of the machines went, because, you know... Fundamentally, if you use, if you apply that rule now, it's exactly the same. It's just now you've got a delete button. It was always good to to get that fear out of you, get that fear factor out of you. And I never went to audio college. I was used to mixers and I was used to microphones and I was used to audio equipment. But the audio equipment, obviously, I saw in the in the, in the transfer bay was very different to the audio equipment I'd ever seen anywhere else. The one thing you've got to learn is that there's got to be a balance, and um, and you've got to learn that sometimes it's not just about the audio. You know, there's other factors into that come into um, come into the mix as far as are we telling the story right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I've learned a lot over the years that sometimes less is more. So just because I'm the audio guy, why do I have to throw everything into it? You know. And yeah. sometimes I've realised that actually pulling back and and just giving giving the viewer enough audio, enough sound design, just to engage them and let the pictures do the rest. It's a very very tough thing to do because as a sound designer, you feel like you're you, you're not putting your all in unless you put everything into it. <laughs> yeah, something and, and, at every second. Yeah, and sometimes what you're doing is you're you're actually doing yourself. Um, you know, a disfavor there because you're actually what you're doing is that you're putting everything in there, but it it shows that's what you're doing. So it feels a little bit. Sometimes you look at something. I mean, I look at stuff sometimes and go, 
God, he he put a lot of war, he put a lot of work into that. Now, whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, it always feels like sometimes you need to pull back. You know, don't don't give everything. You know, just pull back a little bit and see how how the story or how you can engage people without having to put everything into it. You know, um, certain things sometimes feel better when they're very subtle. Um, I've always said, sound as, as a sound designer. If I can get silence into into a piece of film or a piece of work, then that's half of my job done there. So, so how yeah. do you make those decisions? How do you make sure that you know what the story is, or what the goal is that the clients have coming into Grand Central, and and how do you make sure that you know what's most important to them in the sound design of their projects? Sometimes I get a head start with creative teams, i.e. copywriters and, and art directors that um, they they kind of come up to me sort of sort of at the start of the kind of project. So, for example, they might have an idea that's floating around and they'll come to me and they'll say, Muns, Muns, we've got this idea, we're going to do it like this, we're going to do that. And then that kind of gets my brain whirring and then I start working out how to do certain things and, or you know, I, I'll get a chance to look at the treatment before things get filmed or before the project takes off. So that kind of, once again, goes back to collaborating with with creative people. So, you know, uh, you know you've got two guys at the ad agency that write the commercial, you know, they start collaborating with you. So, you, you know, you bounce ideas off each other, which is always great. Because then you can get into their heads and you can work out exactly what, what, what they're thinking of. And then obviously you have the director... The director then has a treatment, an idea, and then he gets involved in the party as well. So then you have that. So, you know, when I say these are my clients, these are the, cl- the clients that put me to do the work. But then obviously we have a client client, which is the ad agency's client, who then obviously um, is paying for this ad to be made. So they might have another idea. But usually if you get the right people as far as writers, art directors, you know, directors that film the stuff, editors that edit the pictures, uh, flame operators, uh, VFX guys, graders, you know, colorists. If you get the right people involved and they're all kind of singing off the same hymn sheet, you get this kind of wonderful piece of crafted film, which is always a great thing. You recently won a Creative Circle Silver Award for a video for the National Autistic Society called Sensory Overload. And we already have sort of started to talk about the process um, in your world of creating sound design. Um, But could you use that video as an example and walk me through the life cycle of one of your projects from your first interaction with the clients or the people associated with the clients and delivering the final product? A very good friend of mine, director Steve Cope, who I've worked with many times, um, uh, approached me and said, we have an idea of doing a commercial for the Autistic Society. And um, the idea is based around sensory, uh, sensory overload. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't actually have a clue about what that actually was. And um, Steve had actually explained to me that it was about people that are autistic have this disability where sensory sensory overload sort of um, is 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 a part of their life. I still wasn't sure, so I asked him to explain. And uh, him being a director and a visual director, he kind of explained it as you know moving shapes and stuff. But 
Steve being Steve is actually a director who's um, he's deaf, so well partially deaf. You know, I said to I know, jokingly, I said to him, I said, well, I said the sound's going to be great on that then, and then he, <laughs> you know, he kind of laughed and he's like, yeah, well, the sound's going to be great on that. So I kind of sort of like I kind of said that to him, you know, in a kind of really cocksure way, and and actually didn't have a clue. And um, uh, after I met him, I went home, um, went on the internet. And kind of um, Googled, researched what it actually meant. And um, all of a sudden started to open up these can of worms about how people with sensory uh, sensitivity, they don't actually have filters to filter out any audio. So you're in a kind of, um, you know, a lot of these guys, a lot of these people, you know, a lot of autistic people, that is, you know, they they live in a world which is it's just surrounded by this concophony of sound. Uh, which they can't filter out. And I actually then put my sort of, you know, put myself in their shoes and then thought to myself, wow, you know, there's days when I come out of session and I don't want to listen to anything. Pretty much that's, you know, that's their that's their day-to-day life, you know. Because mm-hmm. originally my idea was to make this sort of lovely sound and make it all feel very beautiful and pretty and, you know. And then I just thought to myself, actually, it's not that pretty. So let's do something that's a little bit atonal, a little bit, gro- you know, a little bit kind of um, uncomfortable. So talking about the life cycle of a project, for this particular project, your first interaction was a conversation with the director, and then you went away and did some research. And uh, so then what was next for this project? I then had a meeting with the creative kit. Kit was a creative on it. Um, and... Me, Steve, and Kit had a, had a meeting, and uh, then they went and shot shot the spot. They went and um, filmed it. Uh, they came back to me, and then um, the actual process from there actually was then st- I started then layering in sounds and manipulate manipulating sounds that you know when I say manipulate them, I kind of wanted to get some sort of rhythm uh, within the film. Yeah, there is a rhythm within the film. So how did they film it without you doing the sound design first and then them, you know, performing to that rhythm? Well, basically, what we realized that the audio actually didn't have to have a, a strict rhythm. So it could be slightly atonal. I see. Um, and, and actually, as long as we started all right and we started to a certain kick track as such, it should be fine. And then luckily with Izzy, who was the film editor on it, she could nip and tuck the edit to make it work. And then we realised that once we get into this rhythm, if we actually make it slightly atonal so it's not completely on the beat, it'd actually be better. And so we did that um, because if it was too good and too on the beat, it would then become just like a music track. I think I probably spent... So there's nine hours in a day for me uh, in a studio. So I would say complete time, I would say a day and a half to do the, the full sound design. Experimental. I would just like to have some people's voices on the podcast so that other people listening know that real people listen to it. I'm not sure exactly how I came across this, but it was around April or May, and uh, I'd get excited when the new one, when a new one would come on. <laughs> and uh, and uh, actually, I'm pretty sure you posted one on June 7th. I just want to remember that because it's my birthday. And I was on vacation. I was like, "Oh hell yes!" Nice. <laughs> I was listening. To, I was listening to the podcast out on the beach in North Carolina. 
Brilliant. I was with you on the beach on your birthday. <laughs> I've got four or five podcasts that I just that I love. And Sound Design Live is one of them. In my work as a career coach for audio professionals, I like to be able to give my clients kind of a, a realistic idea of how much money they can expect to make throughout their career in certain fields. You know, they're all a little bit different. So yeah. would you mind talking about how much you made when you first started out and maybe kind of the maximum you expect you'll be able to get in the UK in sound design for commercials and TV? Uh, so I kind of started on the minimum wage such. Uh, and as far as working your way up, the difference between earning what you earned as a runner to what you earn, earn as a machine operator is a big difference. None of us get into this industry to make money. None of us get into be rich. But then once you're in it and you want to mm. stay in it and you've got to kind of figure out, am I going to be able to support myself? And am, am I going to be able to reach my financial goals with this career? That's kind of the question that I, yeah. that I try to answer for people. Yeah, no, I agree. So, so when it comes to that is that, yeah, within our industry, audio industry in London in post-production, if you become a good, good engineer, a good, good sound designer, the, the money, you know, if, you, if your studio is occupied with clients and you're, you're billing money, you will always make a lot more money. And, and, and that's, I think, how the industry works. So I see. Uh, so, if, so, for example, not all the sound designers at the same company make the same amount of money. So if, if there's one, if there's a couple of, or one sound designer who clients really like or clients come back in to work with, then that person might make more money. Yeah. Okay. Exactly that, yeah. Well, uh, now I'm nervous every time I'm going to say your name because I'm like, it's not Munzi, no, it's Munzi. No, no, it's, 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 if you do, it's Munzi Thin. Munzi Thin, I know. That's it. I just get nervous because I said it wrong the first time. So, Munzi, um, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Um, I think the best place uh, to follow my work online is uh, Vimeo. Uh, and GCRS.com is also our website. Well, Munzi, thanks for being here and thanks for being on Sound Design Live. Pleasure, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nathan. Sound Design. Thanks to Steve Knotts for the music in today's episode. You can find him at stevenotts.bandcamp.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-N-O-T-S.bandcamp.com or uptick.org. And I want to read you real quick his bio on Bandcamp. It says, focus your ears on this dub house based music for surviving the apocalypse with style. No artificial preservatives. 